it's not quite client facing, but uh, friend facing. I know we've we've covered this before, but I still I still struggle to say or to tell people that I don't want to hang out with them. I don't want to see them. <laughs> Because, I mean, frankly, in the case I'm considering here, I just don't know the person that well. I don't like them very much. Yeah. But they seem to to see me as, like, a great ally in the fight against journalism. Oh, you, <laughs> got, say, you got specific there. I'd, well, I mean, this could literally be anybody who I've worked with. But, uh, yeah, like, looking for advice or looking for, hey, how would you do this? And I, you know, give some sort of sage advice. 12 hours after I've received the message and then it comes up with oh that's so great that's, I'm so thankful thank you so much do you want to get coffee? So, oh no thank you and then I ignore it <laughs> just say no thank you um, why? But, just, then, but then I've got no reason you don't have to have a reason this is the social pressures that are all lies and fake and we shouldn't believe them you don't have to have a reason to say no about anything really right do you want to give half your income to charity? no <laughs> well yes but I can't. Well, yeah, but that you don't need to say yes, but you can't. You can just say no. And then if someone's like, well, why? But you don't have to justify. You just say no. And it's fine. Uh, if, you had the cho- if you had the choice to pay 1% tax, would you? If I had the choice to pay 1% tax, I would not pay 1% tax, no. Oh, um, okay. Why? I fully believe that a system of fair and progressive tax is the only path <laughs> to like bettering a nation. Sorry, this this t- turned very sharply into a uh, far left podcast. It's, well, we always you, you asked the tax question. Everybody knew what was coming. It was me <laughs> saying the word progressive or something like that. That's um, podcast bingo. And, and I think a big part of that for me is 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 not taking advantage of current systems. Okay. So if it was just me that got the choice, one percent tax, everybody else pays normal. Definitely no. If everybody got the choice, still for me no, because I believe that my money is well spent bringing other people and education and whatnot. Um, but I wouldn't judge anybody if it was a everybody can choose 1% tax or the normal right. tax rate. I wouldn't judge anybody for going for the 1%. And I wouldn't say, why are you doing this? And expect them to answer. I would say, why are you doing this? And they can say, I just want to. And I'd be like, oh, fair enough. The reason I ask... Have you considered education? The reason I ask is because I saw an article today on the BBC News website, which was about Jimmy Carr and uh, a book that he has written just in time for Christmas which is 90,000 words long, apparently. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in said book, mm-hmm. he addresses the fact that in 2012, he was caught up in one of many scandals involving uh, celebrities avoiding tax. Yes. And the fact that he was paying something like 1% tax because of legal loopholes. Yeah. And part of me was like, I don't really care about this person's book and the fact that they're no. getting to recant their past sins of not paying the tax that they should have done. Yeah, because by selling a book to make money. <laughs> right. And whilst the article and the, the quotes from Mr. Carr were very, oh, it was a terrible th- mistake I made and I was very sorry and uh, if I could go back and do it again, I would do it differently. But it goes back to the question I asked. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd do it better. <laughs> I'd hire a better accountant. Yeah, it goes back to the question I asked, which is, if you had the choice of paying 1% tax, would you? Clearly, Mr. Carr was like, oh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, he had the choice and he did it. Like, sure, he'd do it again, but only because he got caught. (laughs) He'd still be doing it if he didn't get caught. This is why we need all the investigations to be super well-funded, because (laughs) the only thing that matters to these people is if they get caught or not. Do you think that celebrities or people or whomever can ever leave behind things that they got wrong in the past? For example, Mr. Carr, this is almost 10 years ago, and he's still and for will forever be associated with being a tax dodger, as will 
Gary Barlow and other people. Yeah. So I, is there ever a point where you can move past that? No, I think that there are celebrities who manage to rebrand themselves or like get forgiveness for their past sins and stuff like that. Um, and maybe it's about the the type of thing they did bad, like how how much we can empathize with it or not. If we can empathize more, maybe it's easier to just forget the forget it and move on after it's all forgiven and whatnot. Whereas something like this, where it's like so out of reach for every single normal human being, none of us can achieve this. Right. If we try to achieve this, we get caught, we get prison. Um, there's, there's, it's really hard to empathize because not only can we not do it, but most of us are decent enough to be like, actually, no, paying tax is a pretty good thing to do. Morally, it's the right thing to do. So it's it's so out of reach that it's, it's so hard to forget the people that do this kind of thing. Sorry, just at that point when you said, oh, it's something that n- none of us will ever achieve. I know this is going bouncing from tangent to pillar to post, but that's kind of what we do on the show. I mean, it's the intro. That's, yeah, <laughs> the, we get people used to it. I uh, was recalling last week a talk I gave at uh, GCU back when I was uh, in the the Gunnels of Fame mm-hmm. at STV Glasgow. Yeah. And I was giving a talk alongside a Commonwealth athlete, I think the first Scottish gymnast mm-hmm. to win a medal, right. which I don't remember his name, but it was in Manchester and it was in the 90s. Right. And the whole point of his talk was essentially, <laughs> oh, no. if you can dream it, <laughs> you can, you do, can it. do it. Oh no. And he... His his whole mission was, or his whole his whole message was, I wanted to be a Commonwealth athlete, and, and I, I did, it, did it, and I was on the podium. Ah, and I, I really I really felt terrible because I started my my like version of the talk. There was three of us. I started my talk by saying, "Well, thank you very much Gotta for that be talk." Realistic. I am going to tell you the opposite advice, which is. You've got to deal with the fact that even though you might want to be a rock star like me, or you might want to be the fastest man in history, you might want to be an astronaut, but face it, you're at yep. Glasgow Caledonian University. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and I think this is really important because this message of if you can dream it, you can do it is just setting people up for massive disappointment. And at some point, yeah. you have to recognize that no doesn't matter how badly you want something, sometimes it's just not going to happen. So the whole point of my message was, uh, yeah. focus on what you're good at, what you're talented at, what skills you have, Indeed. and then figure out, okay, what can I do with the skills I have, rather than just yeah. willy-nilly, I want to be the Prime Minister of Cambodia, therefore I can do it. No, you can't. <laughs> Why Cambodia? <laughs> or, oh, sorry, just the Prime Minister of anything. Okay, okay. Just because you want to be it doesn't mean you can. You just can't. So sorry, Mr. Commonwealth Games athlete from the 90s, who a quick Google search would tell me what his name was. I want to be the Prime Minister of free donut deliveries to my house. And I am. Uh, Yeah, I am also the president of eating far too much cereal. (laughs) It's something, actually, I've had to control. I have to restrict myself. uh, In the same way I restrict my coffee intake, I'm now restricting my cereal intake. Well done. Because if I could... I would literally be having like half a dozen bowls a day. And that's bad. I can't do that. I do completely agree with your message, though, to focus on what you're actually good at. But with also a little bit of a caveat that only if you actually really enjoy that thing. Yeah, yeah. Don't buy into the whole thing that, that society and schools and all of these institutions are teaching us, which is just like, find what you're good at. 
and suffer through it until you retire at the age of whatever. By the time we're retiring, it'll be like 100 or something. Yep. That's just big lies as well. And all these lies are set up to keep us in our place, uh, our, our lower classes, whether it be middle or lower class itself. Um, don't be doing the suffering. Find a position of comfort if you can. And then not everybody can. Um, of course, it's about minimizing suffering. Some people have to work the three jobs to get through every week of their life. Um, and I, I, we can Steve through. We we can hope that they can they can reduce their suffering. But it's far more important to find a point of contentedness Sorry. in your work and what you do for a living, and then setting aside the rest of the time for right. all the experiments and the things that you enjoy. And as much as we would want this podcast to be massively successful where we both make a living off of it and then suddenly the servers of SoundCloud get hacked and they show how much they've been paying us. Hey! <laughs> nice wee reference to Twitch there. Uh, then that's fine. That's a great goal to have, but it's just not going to happen. So, as you say, James, you've got to find something you enjoy and then do it. And if it doesn't pay you, that it takes up three hours of your time every week, that's fine because you that's enjoy right. it. It's a good, it's a good ex- yeah, it's good for the mental health. Absolutely. Okay, well, anyway, good for your mental health. That is the new tagline of this show. Seesaw Parade, episode 266. I'm Colin and he is James. I continue to be. The singular version. Indeed. Uh, although when his um, when his bow is in Scotland, he becomes James because the, then he is now plural. Oh, <laughs> all right. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate every single one of you. Uh, and of course, you can get in touch with the show at Seesaw Parade on Twitter or seesawparade at gmail.com. Go on, send us an email or send us a message like uh, Luke has done this week. Oh. He said he liked the previous episode, which was uh, 265. Why are you sitting on it? Oh. Uh, he liked it and he did wonder where his mention was for the distant friends that actually do listen to the show, as opposed to the ones I slagged off who actually live in Glasgow and don't listen to it. So thank you, Luke. I do appreciate that very much. And uh, he said he would send us a review of something, initially suggested he he would actually review this show, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but instead moved on to a uh, disappointing episode of Grand Designs. So there we go. Oh, look out for that. That's that should be that should be coming. Iconic show. Um, everybody loves that one, right? I remember who presents it. It is people. It's the guy who's balding and has a good voice. <laughs> That's like sixty percent of men. <laughs> and also, it features a sh- a, just a show of really rich people with too much I money know. and no architectural sense. <laughs> so rich people. Precisely, and we'll talk more about them later in the show. But yes, thank you very much for listening. Cease Operate, of course, your new favourite podcast, Scotland's longest running yep. season one of any entertainment slash news slash politics slash kind of just life podcast in history and also less popular than curtain rails. That is 100% true. It is. Although I personally do not have more curtain rails than we have people who listen to this show. So that's an achievement. But that, that is more good. Po- more popular than my curtain rails. Okay, yeah, I'll absolutely take that. And uh, yeah, thank you once again for listening. Really, really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot to, to crack on with, James, so let's do that. Let's begin. Indeed. Talk about Facebook. Can't wait. Do you remember the, the days, James, where Seesaw Parade used to actually have a Facebook page? Yeah, well, yeah, I remember it, but only because every now and then one of the notifications would make its way to my phone and I'd be like, I hate Facebook. <laughs> and also the fact that towards the end, uh, just we just didn't get any interactions at all. 
So, I mean, to be fair... We never tried. I kind of tried. We paid to, to try once or twice. <laughs> I did. Put adverts and not a single person believe, clicked on the link. I can't believe you did that to this day. The worst people. Okay, anyway, this is the news that this week, <gasps> on Monday evening, Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram... They went dark. Were down. They were out for the count. Wow. For almost six hours. So, James, what did you do? How did you cope? It's- I, I don't use any of those services, so I coped just fine. I didn't notice until everybody was complaining about it. Right. So, uh, yeah, I had a, a fun adventure on Monday because, right. you know, obviously, they, they stopped working. Uh-huh. I was with Graham at the time, so it was fine. We were um, being really cool and playing Pokemon and Tekken. That's cool. But uh, but then we, I thought, oh, I think, I think my Wi-Fi is down. And so I attempted to re- reset my router, but being the idiot that I am, like, did something really stupid. I turned off the Wi-Fi and then couldn't figure out how to turn it back on again. What? I know that sounds ridiculous, but it, it was. Basically, there's a big button on my, my Vodafone router uh-huh. which says the words Wi-Fi and to get it back on, you have to press that button. Right. I couldn't find the button. You couldn't find the Wi-Fi button. I couldn't find the Wi-Fi button, despite the fact it's on top of the router. Yeah. I couldn't find it until 2am the next morning. What? Uh, Wait, it was embarrassing. Was this like a, you snapped awake at 2am having already slept for two hours and went, the button? Uh, no, uh, this is me. at ran to it? Uh, at quarter past one, having driven to, to Fife to drop Graham off again, come back home and be like, right, I'm only going to bed after I fix this Wi-Fi, and then eventually gave up, turned the router upside down to reset it, and only on turning it the right way up again, yeah, right way around, did I see the, the giant Wi-Fi button on the top, which says the word Wi-Fi. I don't know, that's fine. I understand that one, because I've lost my phone while on the phone, so <laughs> we, we all do those kinds of things. It's fine. Okay. No stress. But anyway, so I didn't really notice, because we were yeah we were hanging out so it was fine but the issues that it caused other people i have, i saw people who said they managed to read a book that they've been planning to do for most of the year someone else got back into yeah. art that they uh-huh. had started in the previous lockdown what are these inspirational stories really seriously this is melting my brain already and some people were like hey we could we could just you know watch tv or or do something without a phone and genuinely, people were tweeting these things, saying, hey, I'm amazed. what a great day. What? This is so strange to me because, like, I'm going to use the word, like, addicted, but not. I'm not, ta- I'm not saying it's a hard addiction. But for me, this, this freedom from Facebook and its other services is obviously letting people let go of something that they're somewhat addicted to if it means that they're able to go read a book for the first time and whatever. Right. But what's melting my head is that it is just... The Facebook services that disappeared, that's a very specific phone addiction or a very specific internet well, addiction because there's a thousand websites to be using. True, but Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram are, well, the first two certainly are primarily used for messaging. You know, I would yeah. I would wager I use WhatsApp more than anything else in terms of keeping up with people. Yeah. And other people will use Messenger, which was also down. But the knock-on effect of that was also that any apps which use a Facebook login Indeed. were also down. And Instagram, for all the youngins, was down as well. So this is, this is the problem when you have a monopoly on three of the biggest 
social media sites in the world. Yeah, and and in in some countries, those are ninety nine percent of the ways that people will message are those, and it, yep. th- that goes for business, and it goes for education, and it goes for all sorts of things, which you know just screams even more to this monopoly problem and how much these companies have put themselves in as a part of our infrastructure. Yes, which I still believe we should own. So this is the this is the problem in that the three sites went down for almost six hours. And particularly in other parts of the world, this was in the middle of the day. Yeah. For us Brits, it was, you know, just after five till about half past ten. And then it was up and running again. So less... See, I thought it was in the morning. This is how far off I was. (laughs) It was the morning in in certain parts of the States. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and this, it highlighted the problem, as you say, of these sites, these apps that people use to stay in touch with people, which by the what seems to be an accidental error we'll talk about that in a second yeah of servers going down of things being deleted of people's uh key cards not allowing them entry into to buildings what? that then disrupted millions if not billions of people across the world and it was all because of one company yep so that to me is a problem it is and i'm unsure how you would undo that problem because they are a private company masquerading as well not even masquerading they are in charge of a essentially like a what we all define as a public service the ability to contact each other yeah um and i don't think it's a really f- solvable problem aside from like i agree saturating the market with enough competitors or having a globally centralized uh, like messaging format system so that all the companies are tapping into the same way so they can all uh, communicate with each other basically so much like email right it doesn't matter who you email the email arrives in their inbox it doesn't matter what company you use doesn't matter what company they use yeah yeah, yeah. you get to read it whereas you can't use like facebook messenger to send a message to someone on a competing platform because there isn't this centralized agreement for how messages work. And I think that that's, aside from uh, massive market saturation, which is hard to do and really going to never happen, the only thing we can do is centralize things, make an agreed format so that all messenger apps can communicate with all messenger apps. And therefore, if everybody drops off WhatsApp for a day, they all know, hey, I can just go use my other app and it will be exactly the same. It'll work functionally the same. and there wouldn't be those issues, but that wouldn't be as profitable. So that's never going to happen either. So it's there's no workable solution, I don't think. Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, my solution or the solution that myself and Graham had is, I mean, we mainly use Snapchat. We are the only people who are keeping that app going. And it was fine, <laughs> mainly because Facebook don't own it. And uh, there is plenty of servers to go around for the 17 of us who still use <laughs> yeah, Snapchat. Yeah. 10,000 servers each. But as you say, James, it is this reliance on one company who have no reason to essentially break themselves up or unmonopolize and say, hey, you know what? We're just going to make WhatsApp a separate company again. Yeah. I know that... Or even just to cooperate. Right, right. And the emails is a good example of how that can be done. But that's going to take a huge shift in terms of what technology... Well, it can't be that difficult, to be honest. But no. as you say, it, it's the fact that it's all under one company that's the problem. In the same way that Amazon are, and Google, essentially the big three, well, Apple as well, Microsoft, big five, are the ones who control huge spheres of our digital lives, which are more and more just becoming yeah. the way we do everything. Well, the the big difference would be how 
how they make money off of these things now. And it's because they get our data and they use that data to make money. So if everybody had the data, it would be harder for them to make money. So the best way to make the most money for them is to have the biggest slice of the pie of messenger users, whatever the messaging app may be. They want as much of the pie as possible. So they get the most data, more data than all their competitors. And therefore they make the most money with that data by whatever uh, means, right? So there isn't the same kind of cooperation as there might have been in the past, in the earlier days of the internet where uh, the the tool is made first, so email and the protocol is made first, and then everybody buys into that protocol and uses it. So we've kind of done things in a very obviously modern way of all the companies didn't agree to a protocol and it's kind of hard to force them to do it now. One other thing just before we talk about why else Facebook was in the news this week is that similarly to when I turned off my work emails on my phone, it was actually really nice not having any WhatsApp pings throughout the evening. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just have the app switched to basically off and I just go there when I remember to, which is very rarely because I'm not a very communicative communicative person. Unless you're on the show, in which case you are. Oh yeah, I, I kind of have to be. It would be really <laughs> awkward if I just ignored you for 18 hours on the show. Uh, I mean, it would be a one-man show. I'd be okay with that. So <laughs> the, the other pushback... No, sorry, that's just because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a prick. But uh, the other result of this blackout was certainly for me that same realisation of actually not having that many notifications and not having to check my phone every 20 minutes, actually probably more than that, mm-hmm. was was good. And so I, and I noticed this yesterday. My mum messaged me asking me something about my birthday and I, I saw the message. I just didn't open it. And then less than half an hour later, she asked, where was I? Like, hello? It was, where yeah. are you? Hello? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I was like, look, exactly. I can just not reply. There's no onus on me replying super fast. I can reply at any point. But now we're in this... And perhaps I would say part of it is my own fault for just being always available. Yeah, we bet. But also, we've got to get away from this mindset that you've got to reply straight away as soon as a message comes in. Like, you just wait. Just wait a few hours. It's fine. World's not going to end. Yeah. Yet. It's, it's another one of those social things that we've all bought into, the idea that we can't just leave a message for a day. Whereas, like, just think about generations ago, <laughs> how, how long it would have taken to get a message uh, over the like even a hundred miles, right? Come on, yeah. We've all got to calm down here, um, um, and for me, having the switch off is really handy. So I, I from it's for the phone I get to be away from. Um, I if I want to be available, I go to my PC. Everybody knows you reach me on Discord. You reach me via whatever means that arrive on my big screen because it's there. And then if I want to turn off. PC's gone. I go downstairs. Phone doesn't get yep. any notifications if I if I if I want to. And it's it's good to have those different spheres in your own life. So, good move. Keep it up. Okay, well let's talk about why Facebook was also in the headlines, which uh, swiftly dis- disappeared after the outage. This was <laughs> the blackmail, the, might might one say, the uh, whistleblower. Francis Hogan, who came forward, first of all, speaking to NBC 60 Minutes about essentially just this litany of damning allegations about her former employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, she told the show that Facebook was prioritizing profit over safety what? and was tearing our societies apart. What? And then she testified in Washington in front of senators on Tuesday. Wow. And uh, yeah, James, a lot of what she said, I mean, it's Can't great that it's it. coming from someone who actually worked there, but I suspect 
suspect we already knew it. <laughs> everybody, everybody knew it. Everybody's known this stuff. It's nice to have it a bit more verified because it's from someone on the inside. It's it's very telling that Facebook is just trying to take her name and smear it so that she doesn't have any legs to stand on. Um, obviously. Uh, there is a lot of truth in what is being said. And it is truth, as you say, that we all knew. We knew that Facebook isn't doing good things for us. We've seen their their mass um, marketing campaigns that just target insecurities. We've seen their their acceptance of conspiracy theory groups. Yep. Um, We've seen the way that they allow governments to pay them um, to distribute lies without any challenge. Yep. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things. And it's just no surprise at all that the company is choosing profit over health okay, so or profit over um, society. I want to pick out three headlines, the latter of which I want to discuss. The first one that she came out with was one we talked about last year in which Facebook was accused of essentially inciting genocide in Myanmar because of the posts which were being shared and Facebook was, uh, by its algorithm, actually encouraging the posts to be shared even more. And Mm. uh, yeah, that's then Mm -hmm. led to those accusations. The second one, as you say, is that Facebook was essentially encouraging fake, false stories, narratives, groups. And they tested this by creating new Facebook profiles following Donald Trump, Melania Trump, and somebody else. And the first groups which were being suggested that, oh, you may also like this, was the likes of QAnon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctors on the front line, these, you know, false anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory nut jobs. And the third uh, aspect I want to talk about, this is the one which, which really struck me, was that Facebook had done its own research into the impact of Instagram. And the lead finding of this research was that the app is damaging the mental health and well-being of some teenage users with almost a third of teenage girls saying that it made their dissatisfaction with their own body worse. And this, uh, this quote from Francis Hogan then says... Facebook's own research says it's not just that Instagram is dangerous for teens, but that it harms teens, and that actually it's distinctly worse than other forms of social media. That is astonishing and incredibly sad, and yet the the app itself is pushed as, like, the app for younger people. Well, yeah, and they're making the For Kids version, right? Which and that's Facebook's target. They've got that in their in their own uh, internal messaging as well. That the the, the, the younger demographics are the next target audience to try and make money off of, and it's of course making money off data rather than their own wallets and whatnot. But yeah, it, it is no surprise. Companies for a long time have been doing their own internal investigations into things, finding out that oh, actually, yeah, we the company are being evil, and then they go. We'll hide this investigation. We'll uh, keep this one quiet and just keep doing what we do. This goes. This goes back to global warming investigations in the eighties yep. and beyond that. And this is like stuff that is incredibly harmful. The companies are never going to care. And there's two more points I want to make. The first one is about Instagram. It is, in my experience, the app which also makes me feel a little bit near about 
you know, my own, for example, career versus other people because I see them posting about all the great things they're doing. Right. So one of my old colleagues is in Antarctica this week filming a feature. One of my other former colleagues is filming this new show, an adventure show for the BBC. Right. I'm seeing this because they're posting on Instagram and then it mm-hmm. makes me think, well, I'm not really doing anything like that. I feel, am I failing? Am I yeah, not, yeah. am I failing to live up to potential? It's just not helpful. And the second point of this uh, and the final one I want to, to raise is about Facebook's change to their algorithm. So you may recall in 2018, uh, or rather pre-2018, Facebook would show you their newsfeed in chronological order. Yes. So if you were so inclined, you would essentially scroll through newsfeeds, you would catch up on what you'd missed, and then you were back to the start. In 2018, they changed it so that instead of seeing this uh, nicely ordered list of statuses, users would then see a customized feed of you know, photos from yeah. days earlier, from news stories, and it was done to prioritize content that increased user engagement. So clicks and mm-hmm. going to different links and doing this and doing that. And Francis Hogan, this whistleblower, has said that this decision is what made the divisive content so much more prominent because people were yeah, is, yeah. clicking on it and sharing it because it was so divisive. It was getting a reaction. And Facebook then encouraged that. And this has now been linked to the January 6th riot uh, at the, the Capitol building, as well as violence in, in Burma and Myanmar that I talked about already, as, much, as well as a whole host of of other big news stories over the years. So, James, after all that, my question is, <laughs> what can be done about Facebook, if anything? Um, well, what needs to be done for a lot of these companies is that they need to make their algorithms, their the goals of their algorithms, public. Uh, whether that be directly to us public or whether it is a- accountable to uh, some sort of an oversight committee public. Because the goal is often just, like, make money for a site. And then that's just not nuanced enough because it has to also be like without harming the user. So they need to have their 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 system of, of how the algorithm is encouraged to come up with these things more uh, in uh, something we can interrogate and something we can learn about so that we can call them out when they're when they're doing stuff that, that is just leading to uh, harm. Because YouTube is the same. YouTube changed their algorithm um, not so... And not so long ago, I'm not sure when it, when the recent changes started, but they started doing uh, the same thing where it's focusing less on what you've opted into viewing and instead focusing on what they think you should view for the most watch time, uh, and which is why uh, a whole bunch of alt-right and right-wing uh, associated channels started popping off because people watched them. Those channels encouraged anger and that anger was addictive. And it's a whole pipeline. There's there's studies done on this. There's essays done on this. You can read about it, how the YouTube algorithm just led to this uh, pipeline to right-wing uh, um, channels on their site. So yep. uh, Facebook does it. YouTube does it. Twitter's kind of getting there. Uh, they're, they're, every time I visit there, the, the homepage is more and more out of order and yep. anger-inducing. Um, and the only thing we can do is have all of their currently black box algorithms be something we are allowed to investigate and see and call out and say you're not doing good uh, and f- fine them if they aren't fixing it. And there has to be significant fines. None of this like 
back pocket change fine. Okay, well, if you have deleted your Facebook or you're spending less time on your phone or if you've got a different opinion entirely to the two of us, get in touch, ceaseoperate at gmail.com. Let's move on. Let's talk about the other big story of this week. And this is uh, one that's rolled on for a couple of weeks now and will continue to. It's the fact that energy costs are essentially going to go up even higher than previously predicted. With uh, today, the boss of Iceland coming out to say the higher cost of energy and other price increases means that rises in supermarkets, in shops and across industries are now inevitable. This comes as analysts predict that household energy bills are set to rise by hundreds of pounds next year. They've said that the energy price cap, which uh, currently protects domestic consumers from essentially enormous prices, could go up by £400 a year in the spring. So that would be the price cap rising to about 1,700 quid, which Mm -hmm. is, uh, yeah, almost a third higher than the current cap set for this winter, which is at um, 1277. So, James, we saw the price of gas, uh, again, being sold in therms, hit 400 pence per therm on Tuesday. That's a tough number of words. Price per therm. (laughs) Price per therm. And also it then then dropped because Putin came out and said, okay, maybe we'll give you some more gas from Russia. It's still sitting around 260 pence per therm. And bear in mind, it was around 40 pence per therm in March. Yes. So this is an insane price rise. It will only continue to sit around that level I struggle to see a a world in which it drops to the 40p we saw earlier in the year. So this is, James, this is going to push millions of people into fuel deprivation. And we'll talk about the... freezing. Yeah, it was essentially, yeah. We'll we'll talk about the universal credit cut uh, later in the show. But let's focus on the energy price cap to start with. This is completely unsustainable in terms of letting people actually afford to heat their homes and to, to use it for eating things. Yeah, like, it's it's such a huge problem. And, and it's, again, something that, that is just being constantly deflected by the government and by the leaders. Like, oh, no, every single country is struggling with this stuff. Mm-hmm, maybe. Every single country is struggling a little. We're, again, at the forefront of the struggle. We're maximizing how much we can struggle with it. And I wonder what's making it different for us. Well, aside from incompetent leadership, um, and it, like for me, it's just yet another sign that we just, as a as a nation, do not care enough for our poorer uh, households. I know that I'm at a place where I've got like an average income, and I know this this is not a pleasant thing for me to hear about that my energy bills are going up. I can't imagine yep. what this news is like for a family who is already like scrounging week to week to make it through. To be hearing that yeah, universal credit's going, to be hearing that prices are going up, and then food prices are going up, and then everything's going to be more expensive. Like, wages aren't going up. Yeah. <laughs> Support isn't going up. Nothing is. It's going to be food banks again for a whole bunch of people. It's going to be freezing homes, layers of clothes instead of central heating. And it's just dire that this isn't enough to get a party completely on edge about their own sustainability. Um the, the Tories should be having to panic about these things, but they just still believe that they can deflect their way through it all the way to the next election, and they're probably right. Yes, that's the sad thing. They probably are right. So it is what we're seeing in the polls 
the Tories are still as as popular as ever, despite yeah. the chaos we've seen at the pumps and this uh, the energy uh, prices here, as well as what I suspect will be, as the government have themselves said, a very difficult winter. Yeah. So. Just to give you some more information here, this was the boss of Iceland uh, speaking today, which is Thursday, Richard Walker, who said that the energy bill of their supermarkets will go up by £20 million in the next year, alongside uh, higher salaries for the lorry driver shortages <laughs> yeah. and other new costs. Yeah. He said it's inevitable that grocery prices will rise. And in a quote, he says, yes. the UK supermarket industry is one of the most competitive in the world. Our margins are very, very tight. We're not an endless sponge that can just absorb all of these different cost increases. So, mm-hmm. y- y- look, he's right. He's right. And whilst you are right as well in saying that the Tories are essentially like Teflon in that at the moment... It seems to be completely unaffecting their popularity, but also James, we'll take you back to the to the Brexit times and and Project Fear, which, funnily enough, <laughs> predicted all of the things which have currently been happening so in the weird. news in the past couple of months. So these included labour shortages, Can't believe European it. workers who decided to stay on the continent, who could have known? people who decided that actually they wanted to do something else other than the low-skilled, low-paid jobs, food shortages, <laughs> fuel shortages, energy price rises. And at the time, James, they were told, rubbish, you're absolutely not, this is scaremongering. It's fear. Rule Britannia. And now, lo and behold, the Queen. at the Tory party conference this week, which we'll talk about later, very briefly. Sovereignty. The message was, actually, this was this was the plan. It's the growing pains of a new economy. Uh-huh. Shut up. This is constantly just shifting the shifting the goalposts of what the argument is. Like, but, but there is no comeback, or rather, there's no pushback to this, because as you say, James, as a society, I feel we care less and less about our neighbours around us who yeah, you know, are that's... unable to afford or unable to to deal with the fact that things are being yeah. cut and costs are going up. And the middle class, whilst they find these uh, price rises inconvenient and they get less take-home pay, they're still surviving comfortably. For now. And therefore, they're, they're happy to vote Tory. I'd say the middle class, I wouldn't be surprised if they start feeling the real squeeze very soon under the Tories. The Tories' goal isn't to make the middle class and the upper class happy. The Tories' goal is to make the upper, upper class happy. Right. They're going to squeeze everything below like six figures as far as they can and then they'll squeeze the 100k earners and then they'll squeeze the 200k um they're going to keep doing this and the papers and the media and the whole system will keep everybody complacent by blaming the wrong things by distracting us and by diverting attention to to whatever they is convenient for them to continue this shift and i don't understand what anybody except the very top of the top gains from this system. If they're just being loyal because they think they're going to get rewarded someday, they are fooling themselves. This squeeze will continue working its way up until there is only lower class and mega wealthy, and everybody's going to feel it. Yeah, and on the back of that, the government have been telling businesses, essentially, this is your fault. You should have you should have planned for this. We uh, uh, we know that these things have happened, yeah. and I know that we told you they weren't going to happen, <laughs> yeah. but they've happened, and you should have been ready for it. You guys said, "Hey, is it going to be okay?" And we said, "It will be a hundred percent okay. It will be better than ever." And well, you should have prepared for the worst after we said that. 
And I agree, <laughs> the businesses should have not trusted a single thing about Brexit. They should have just left. Every single business that could should have moved every single person they could to Europe and just abandoned us into this like horrible situation we're in. And like the supermarket example is interesting because we've got we have so many supermarket chains. It is great for the consumer because prices do stay as low as they possibly can. But then we do actually see very accurately the results of bad government leadership because bad government leadership will be reflected by the price of your bread and it will be reflected by the price of your cereal because of that competitiveness in the industry. So as soon as you start seeing those prices go up, you know something's going wrong at the top and they've been going up for a while. I've been affected by Brexit's call and I went to do my online shopping and so many of the things that I usually buy were completely unavailable. Ah. I tried to buy a loofah for the shower the other day. Ah. It was gone. We're all gone. Ah. So, ah. Brexit. How dare you. But you know, if uh, weather spins goes under, I'll be happy. Okay, James, let's move on. Let's uh, talk entertainment and start with what we've been watching. Now, I have, as promised, the new James Bond movie. Oh, yeah. Nice. And I see you've got two TV shows, the second of which I am very interested in hearing about because I have seen nothing but this show on social media Uh for the last week. So... It's popping. May I ask that you start with Squid Game. Okay. And then I'll hit you with No Time to Die. And then we'll hit you. Uh, I'll hear from you again with Tokyo Revengers. How's about that? That sounds great to me. Okay, do it. Um, it is no surprise to me that Squid Game is as popular as it is. Can um, we just sorry? Can you just give the explanation as to where what this is? How people can watch it? Squid Game is a Netflix uh, original um, Korean yep. show um, that had been in the works for more than a decade, I believe, until it finally got picked up by Netflix. Um, and it's one of those battle royale type shows. Um, so you've got a massive cast to get... Like Hunger Games. Like a Hunger Games, yeah. I, I like going further back to, you know, the originals. Um, and the reason I think that this show is super popular isn't because of the quality, because it is distinctly average, but it's the good kind of average. It is the very comfortable kind of average. It's because the show speaks to something that we all experience because we are the powerless people in the world. And the the show is speaking to what it is like to be presented with a thing that feels like an option, but really it isn't. And you just have to go for it because everything sucks, do your best. Okay. And that's basically everybody's day-to-day experience is everything sucks, do your best. Your job sucks, but there's no other options. Uh, you've got no money, uh, so take a loan, right? We all have these horrible... Uh, burdens and the this show Squid Game speaks to that very accurately, um, in a in a in a very good way with the background of like gruesome violence and good characters and all of those things that make the show actually actually watchable because the politics isn't enough to carry it. Okay, um, but I think that rather than the quality of the show, it will be the the little bit of empathy that we might not even notice we're feeling that is making people so invested in this and. I am so happy that the current number one show is just some foreign like thing yeah. for everybody. Like, um, it is such a cool step for the platform. Um, I hope that it means that they'll start caring a little bit more about the quality of subs uh, and dubs and things like that for foreign shows. But you never know. Um, but I will say, I will say, 
in the early episodes of the show, one of the things that most reminded me of was Utopia, that show that Channel 4 did a while ago, because of the way it was framing things, its use of color, the music, the the, the tone, the mood, and all of those stuff. And that that really won me over right away. I didn't need anything more than that. As soon as the Utopia bell rang, I was like, okay, I'm in. Uh, perfect. Uh, and while there are some poor moments in the show, characters that are not well executed, moments that aren't well executed, uh, they, they, they really did stick to their themes. They really did stick to their tones. They, even their basic uses of color and stuff like that, where like one color means power, other color means powerless, blah, blah, blah. Um, if, you, if you're paying attention, there is more depth to the show than it's kind of all right execution leads you to believe. Okay. Um, and while the whole story is nothing nothing fancy, you'll have seen it before. Like the reason that this stuff is going on isn't a surprise. Nothing is new. Um, it is well enough done that it is an enjoyable watch. If you can, if you can uh, do subs, I would recommend doing it with subtitles because the dub is really awkward and not very good. Would you watch a second season and is it worth the hype? Uh, nothing's worth this much hype. Okay. Let's make it clear. It, uh, I was I wasn't super aware of the hype. I had seen one thread about the show before I decided to watch it. So for me, it was I've, okay. I've seen a lot. Yeah, for me, it wasn't going in expecting a ten, and I got like a seven, and I was very very satisfied. Whereas if you're going in expecting an award winning show full of perfect acting and incredible drama, you might be a little bit disappointed. But there is enough really good acting and enough really good moments. Where you will, where you will actually be won over, even if you're expecting something really good. I, I believe there is proper heartbreak, which is hard to achieve in a show like this. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and I, and I'm sure a lot of actors' careers will have taken off. Their Instagrams will have garnered tens of millions of follows, uh, and power to them for it. I hope they have successful careers because they did. They, they, everybody in the show was giving it their all. I'll tell you that, absolutely, except. Everyone in the primary cast was giving it their all. There were some characters later in the show who maybe couldn't give it their all just because of global reasons. Fair enough. Okay, thank you for that. Let's move on. I'm going to talk about No Time to Die, which is the 25th James Bond movie and the final outing for Daniel Craig. It is in cinemas now. It has been out for just under a week also stars Rami Malek as the villain Lucifer Safin, which is basically Lucifer Satan. Also have <laughs> Leah Seydoux, Ralph Fiennes, Ben Whishaw, Naomi Harris. Christoph Waltz is back as Blofeld oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. is directed by Carrie Fukunaga, who has done a whole host of, of movies over the years. Very competent, steady pair of hands. So, a right. couple of stats. First of all, this is the longest Bond film of all time. Wow. It's uh, 2 hours 43 in total. Whoa. And it took just four days to become the highest grossing film of the year in the UK. It's not surprising. And uh, it's the first Hollywood movie to break $100 million before even opening in the US and China. Right. So from that perspective, it's been a success. This was delayed so many times. Best part of 18 months. But it paid off. Huge amount of anticipation. So... Is it worth the wait slash hype slash <laughs> is it bringing back the audiences to cinemas? Yes. Aww. Yes, it is. Aww. 
but it's like a tentative yes. It's okay. I'll accept it. So let me start with this. I I did enjoy the film. I thought it was very good. Uh-huh. And good. what I liked most, and this is going to be spoiler free, by the way, because I it's only been out for a few days that I know a lot of people who still are yet to see it. It gives a really nice arc to Daniel Craig's Bond. I would say he's maybe the first one to get like a full arc in franchise history. You know when previous Bonds like... Yeah, they're, just, they're there and then they're not there anymore once it's their turn is right, up. Right, Pierce Brosnan, for example. There's very little continuity. It's just like story, 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 self-contained, self-contained. Yes. Whereas Mr. Craig very much gets a start, middle, ending in all across, what, five different movies. Yeah. So let's start with the villain, Mr. Rami Malek. He's undercooked. He is Aww. very much a 2D sketch of a character, Aww. which is a shame. Because he's so good. In the scenes he is in, he's very much chewing the scenery. And if, you know, if you're unable to chew scenery in a Bond film, should you even be in it? Yeah, exactly. So fair enough. When he's on screen, he's fine. Okay. And Christoph, Christoph Waltz, similarly, in the, the two scenes he's in, okay. also, also excellent. I'm a big fan of his. The supporting cast is what really stands out for me. So... Billy Magnuson, who is a name I'm familiar with because he's been in lots of different movies, but if you Google him, you'll recognize him. He is the classic, like, broad-jawed, blonde American hunk. Yeah. Who is, uh, he's, he's got a secondary role here. I thought he was great. And my goodness, Ana de Armas. Okay, this is a, <laughs> this is a very broad statement, but... This is, a, okay. She is maybe the only woman I would turn for. <laughs> she is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> And she was, the thing is, she is only in this movie for maybe like eight, nine minutes. Right. And she steals that scene. She is just brilliant. I love her. She is just the best. She is the, the, one of the leads in Knives Out. Yes. As the, uh, the, the maid. And she was also in Blade Runner 2049. Yes. As Ryan Gosling's digital girlfriend. Mm-hmm. She's in this as like a Cuban uh, trainee who's helping Mr. Bond on a mission. She's so good. I th- oh, I want to see more of her. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And she may well be back in, in future ones. Yes. You've also got Jeffrey Wright coming back as Felix Leiter. Now, he's another one who has been in this series, I think in every film he's shown up. Mr. CIA Man. Yes, I think he's been in all of them. You're best known from Westworld. He's also great. And the, I would say, the, not the charisma, the chemistry that, that he has with Daniel Craig you know, it, it does come across through the screen like they've known each other for years and they're friends now, and I really like that. There are some classic uh, throwbacks. There's, you know, lots of Bond lines in there that you think, yep, okay, that's a Bond right, line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got to check them off the list. In typical, of course, you know, vodka martinis and uh, yeah, 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 gadgets and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pun jokes when someone has died in a particularly explosive way. Yes. Locations look amazing. I know some of it was shot in Scotland, but you also have uh, Norway, Russia, England, all sorts, Cuba as well, all look amazing. And the action, yeah, the action's pretty solid. Like, I enjoyed it. It was all well choreographed. All right. There's a couple of scenes which are one takes, or certainly appear to be one takes. Oh, right. Okay, uh, very clever. They're really nicely done. I like that a lot. And uh, each of the... Now, here's where the input of Phoebe Waller-Bridge comes in. Right. Now, you may recall, dear listener, about a year ago, the news was that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's best known as the writer of and star of Fleabag, mm-hmm. was brought on to uh, help sexify or make the, the script better or maybe yes. um, add a more female-slash-funny edge. Yes. Now, the film, the film does have 
some funny moments. It may well be the funniest Bond film nice. in recent memory. And not not like laugh out loud comedy, but some just some nice touches. She's clever. But I would be loath or reluctant to attribute all of those to, oh, yes, they are. That's, that's Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's a, that one tastes like a, a bridge. Right, but it, it it's nicely done. And those touches, whether they're her, whether they're the wider team, I don't know, but you can see there is certainly some input there which works. And then right. my overall thought, this is essentially a Bond film, but it's also a film which is almost co-led by Leah Seydoux. Now, she is the female, or rather James Bond's partner that he walks off into the sunset with, Inspector. Yeah. And she is almost like a co-lead character in this movie. Her, right. her name is uh, Madeline Swan. Yeah. And she, Leah Seydoux, I suspect will get bigger and bigger roles. I mean, this is pretty big as it is. Indeed. But she is, she's fantastic. And the two of them together, I really enjoyed seeing. She has this... She's able to convey so many different emotions without even saying anything. Nice. And that, to me, is a, a really yeah, great a... sign of a, a good actress, or in this case, a phenomenal actress. So I agree completely. Really, really liked that, and I thought the way that they, they told the story of the two of them over the last uh, couple of movies really, really nicely. So, overall, this is a solid entry into the James Bond franchise. It is, uh, I would say, in the middle between Skyfall okay. and... Right, Spectre, Casino Royale enjoyed a lot as well. What were the what were the drawbacks? Drawbacks is the length. Okay, that's fair. Drawbacks are the two D sketch of a yeah. villain. Yeah, you want a good villain. Some of the plots a little bit confusing. I mean, you have a general idea of what's going on, but sometimes you're a bit like, well, how did that, how did that happen? Okay. How did we get here? Yeah, that, what am I doing? What's yeah. my name? That's pretty standard for the more recent ones, I'd say. But it is, though, much more profound than what you would expect from a yeah. Bond movie. And that, honestly, is a great thing. I was chatting to this about uh, chatting about this with uh, my brother, actually, and saying nice. Daniel Craig's Bond films have been characterized by uh, loss. If you remember Casino Royale. Indeed they have. Vesper yes. Lind, Eva Green dies. So gritty. In Skyfall, M dies. So gritty. And this has been the recurring theme. And Vesper Lind is... is mentioned in passing in this movie as well. And so, to me, this gritty, darker Bond, in comparison to the likes of, you know, Die Another Day with Piers Brosnan, which yeah. is as, you know, it has invisible cars and all sorts of things going on, actually works better. However... I enjoy those more, yeah. There is the argument that, you know, Bond should be a bit silly. It should be a bit cliche. I disagree. I enjoyed the fact that the, this Bond with Daniel Craig, and particularly this film... It retains that gritty, darker edge of someone who is damaged, someone who has really gone through the ringer in terms of losing people and is is feeling the effects of that. Yeah. So rather than just, uh, oh, I'm a super spy and I pick up ladies anytime I like. No, I... I uh... He's... He's he's very much a flawed human being. No, I, I like that a lot. I like a well executed retouch of a of a character we know. I like that stuff. It has to be well executed though, and this, these have generally been good enough. So, uh, and one final point before I wrap up: Lashana Lynch is also in this movie. She is 007. She has replaced Mister Bond after he walked off into the sunset. And she's great. Now, she was last seen as Monica Rambeau in Captain Marvel. Yeah. And she is uh, very much uh, slid right into the picture here with the, the Bond franchise. I think she's phenomenal. 
and a great actress. Oh, however, I don't know if they're going to keep her on because after this, you know, Daniel Craig's done. Yes, they've they've wrapped it. They tied a nice little bow in the story, and uh, now it's a new slate. So whether we have characters who remain, you know, Q and Ralph Fiennes as M and this Lashana Lynch, I don't know. Guess we'll see. But I feel like there's more of her story we'll have to, to be wait told. And see, yeah. If you get a chance to see the movie, go see it. But if you're waiting for it to come out on streaming services also do that because I tell you what the cinema was rammed and uh, I my throat this morning felt like sandpaper so James uh, Bond gave me a throat infection yeah there's, there's there's a lot more than one infection to worry about Ugh. I was wearing a mask the whole time as well so it's, it's hard to dodge hard to dodge yeah okay James Tokyo Revengers let's hear it this is an anime about no way teenager biker gangs wow. and just generally them fighting each other a lot wow um it's it's also a show about time travel and fixing the past <laughs> i guess uh so it seems like a lot going on yeah it, the main thing is that the main character is someone who has lived a sad life and got really depressed and whatnot and he gets a chance to go back and fix the past by accidentally traveling through time and whatnot so he does that to try and fix the past for him and his friends who are generally in that biker gang um so he's trying to save their lives um the first half of this show i really did enjoy it had a purpose it was fulfilling that purpose the main character uh, cried a lot and was mostly weak and frustrating, but he had they, he had enough agency in the right moments okay. to, to intervene and do the right thing and and just about be his play his part in saving the day, even though as a show we find out that his part is actually enabling other people to save the day and and all of that, which is like a good message because our job isn't to save every situation; it's to be do our part in helping other people save themselves. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. And then the second half of the show just kind of reset that and just did it again, and I was like, oh, okay. I'm bored now uh, because the character didn't really change. He was still just weak and crying a lot and the solutions were still just like enabling other people to save the day. And it didn't do anything new with part two, which I think is uh, just following the manga. The manga had a story, finished story, and then more got commissioned and they were like, all right, we write more now. Oh, okay. Um, so they just they just found a way to make the story continue and it did continue and it was all right. Um you see it in a lot of anime. There's just somewhat of an over-sexualization of these young characters. Yeah. Which, like, we've all been teenagers. We know that when we were teenagers, there was that. But in media, it always feels a bit much. And the more I grow and think about the the uh, responsibility of media in people's lives and the effects it has, the more I'm leaning towards, like, put a bit less of that in the shows, please. There's some shows I've watched in the past that I'm much less forgiving of now. Uh, but in this just, show... Just, sorry, just to, just to button at this point, is it a stereotype for me to say that in anime you're able to do a bit more of that sort of sexualizing of younger characters because it's drawings as opposed to actual people. Yeah, I think that I think they do get away with it a little bit more than some other media would. Right. I, I wouldn't say it's too stereotypical, but it's also not like hundred percent prevalent. It depends on the genre you're watching. There are some genres where it's more popular and there's some genres that will just never do anything of the sort. So it's it's picking and choosing. It's like watching an HBO show and expecting there to be boobs. There's going to be boobs in an HBO show, okay. um, so it's just you can you can you can dodge it all if you if you want. And I and I would encourage some people to because there are some shows that are troubling with it. But this one isn't. There's just occasionally it leans into it for humor and it just didn't land for me. And I was just like awkwarded out by it instead of instead of having it be funny. 
Um, but that's about the weakest things, is that the character doesn't really, at any point, gain agency and the awkward humor. But aside from that, there's some very well-executed characters, um, really good storytelling. There's, there's this, as I said, the second half is way weaker than the first half. The second half just kind of goes like, here's the situation, you better believe it. And then I go, I don't really believe that situation. And then they go, oh, thanks for believing the situation. We're going to continue telling you the story now. And it never sold for me. Uh, a whole bunch of the pieces didn't sell. Um, so as a show, I'd say you could put it on as one of the fillers. If you don't have any time, if you, if you don't have uh, anything to watch and a little bit of free time, start watching this show if you've already watched all the good anime. This one's like a decent one. Do you feel particularly with, uh, you mentioned the show that kind of told a story and then went back and told it again just slightly differently. Do you feel that that's like a pressure from people who enjoy the show or the show's done well and they think, ah, we need to tell another story, well, but oh no, we, we told our best one, so we have to go back and do something slightly different? I think in this instance it came from like the the source material because this is just one season. Okay, it wasn't like a season one happened and then they tried to do it again. Season two, it was it was the mid season split that did the repeat for me, which is just means it's copying it from the source um, comic. Which means for me, I'm guessing that they only had the one comic commissioned, so they wrote as much of the story in to complete their one story arc as possible, and then they got the other ones commissioned and confirmed. So they started doing their longer story. But that means that once you've got commissioned your whole eight-parter instead of your one-parter, parts two and three and four are kind of going to feel like part A again because they are part A again. They're, they become a bit more of the setup again. You see this in, in, in anime, but you also see it in, in any series that only gets one series confirmed and then gets extended afterwards. You see it in all sorts of... Uh, media and it's not too frustrating but it definitely is just disappointing okay well dear listener if you have finished a movie a tv show a book a nice meal you made or even a disappointing episode of grand designs you can review that send it to us gmail.com or send it to myself or jame and we will get it on the show read it out or we'll play it Absolutely. even better and listeners will get to hear your dulcet tones but James, talking off uh, boobs on HBO, we do have a new trailer to review. This is House of Dragon. Yeah, and they didn't spoil any of the boob scenes, so 10 out of 10. <laughs> Which is a teaser trailer for this first spin-off yes. of Game of Thrones. Here's a clip. Kings. Fire. And blood. Dreams didn't make us kings. Dragons did. Two hundred years before the show that disappointed you. <laughs> there was another show which will disappoint you. Okay, James, this said uh, Matt Smith, former yes. Doctor Who. Yeah. In a big blonde wig. Yeah. What did you think? Well, on that specifically, it, I, it was very difficult to engage with Matt Smith in a big blonde right, wig. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Now, just, just, just before you go any further, I completely agree. And I feel that this is a shame 
on behalf of British viewers because yeah. certainly if you are a big fan of Doctor Who, you are familiar with Matt Smith from his role as the Doctor. So when you see him yeah. with a big blonde wig on, you're just like, oh, that's Matt Smith. He looks a bit silly. <laughs> as opposed to, oh, that's Damon Targaryen. Custard. Now, if you're... Yeah. <laughs> fish fingers and custard. Now, if you are an American viewer... And the chances are you're yet to even hear of Doctor Who. This is just someone who looks a bit like an elf. Yeah, we a bit like an elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Legolas's cousin. So yeah. that is, I guess, where the difference will come. People will see this and be like, oh, I'm really excited for Game of Thrones or Game of Thrones version 2.0. Whereas I look at that and think, that's Matt Smith in a wig. Yeah. And I don't re- I'm not really that interested in revisiting something which disappointed me the last time. Yeah, I, I do think he is good at the old acting thing. So I, I, I think after 10 minutes of watching him, you'll you'll grow accustomed to it. Right. Um, I've seen him in a few things and that it does take the little 10 minutes to get past the iconic role that he's been in because um, he is good. And the show looks like it's all right. And it, like they didn't really reveal much. It's hard to say more than, yeah, that's clearly the same kind of theme. And uh, they're going to probably have dragons. Uh, they're going to definitely have dragons. I think they've got like 17 or something dragons. So <laughs> expect a whole bunch of CGI in the first episode yep. and then in the last two, maybe. I, I, I didn't I didn't get the buy-in for the show, though. Aside from just the Matt Smith thing and not buying into that, I just didn't get the general appeal of it in this trailer. Uh, I know that it's a good story because I've read all the extra materials and I like the I like the time period. I like the setup. I like this okay. these characters in this story as it is. Um, but I need to know that it's well done before I really want to give it a go. Be- as we said, because HBO just completely messed up uh, the last show. It's going to take me a little bit more convincing than one trailer to be keen on this one. But I don't want to be a doomer about it. It could be great because it isn't the same directors. It isn't the same showrunners. Uh, it is uh, some of the same team, but they've brought in other people and they've gotten rid of D&D. I mean, I, I, as I say, I'm less interested in this than I was just because Game of Thrones put me off so much at the very end. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, prob- I'll, yeah, I'll probably still watch it, but kind of like Westworld Season 3. Yeah, I still haven't watched that. I suspect it will be on my list for a long time, yeah. and I'll maybe get round to it when I feel like it, because exactly. you know that was the same the same issue, and that Season 2 of Westworld just didn't inspire me to want to see the next one. So yeah. I suspect this show will end up the same way for me. Yeah, and season two of Westworld was like sh- like shades better than season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> so the queue, the queue, where this lands really low on the queue. I need, to, I need to see the reviews before I even consider it. But there will be boobs. <laughs> I would make that the episode title. <laughs> I think I've seen that film. It was Daniel Day-Lewis, right? <laughs> Okay, James, four more stories to take us home. Let's start with the Pandora Papers. Now, this would have been our main story if it was uh, several days ago, but also I suspect this will have more to run. So this is the news that rich people did lots of bad things and continue to do bad things, and nobody does anything about it. So I can't believe this. This essentially was, uh, yeah, revelations which came from what's been called the Pandora Papers, a leak of 12 million offshore files. Mm Mm-hmm obtained by some journalists. Yes. Uh, the BBC, BBC, The Guardian have been looking at it. And essentially what they found is, uh, yeah, a, a whole host of things. For example, a businessman whose uh, companies have backed 34 Tory MPs and uh, gave donations to the party made millions of dollars 
from allegedly corrupt Russian pipeline deals. I can't, uh, it's unbelievable stuff. As well as that, we also have the King of Jordan, who in the Pandora Papers it emerged, he has secretly amassed $70 million worth of UK and US property. Uh, We also have the financial documents of 35 current and former world leaders. For example, Tony Blair and his wife, who saved £300,000 in stamp duty by buying a London office by first buying the offshore firm that owned the building. <laughs> we also have, Very sneaky. We also have Vladimir Putin with secret assets in Monaco. Okay, yeah, Czech yeah. Prime Minister Andrei Babis, who's uh, facing an election this week, failing to declare offshore investments, yeah. uh, basically used to purchase two villas for £12 million. What? And James, this is the latest leak following Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers, LuxLeaks, and again, nothing is done. It's just headline news for a little while. People say tut tut tut, that's terrible, and then life moves on. Now, I don't quite believe the nothing is done side of this story because things are done a little bit and usually just slowly. You can, if you want to, find pages and pages of links, uh, even on Wikipedia, for the the processes that have been enacted ever since the Paradise Papers, for example. And then there will be a similar thing where it's like things that are getting enacted on the on these papers for in 10 years' time, that it will still just be things that are getting enacted. It won't have actually happened yet. But the fact is that that's the system. The system is taken advantage of, and it's going to take decades to fix those loopholes. It's going to take decades to change it all because it's global and it's messy. Um, and people are trying here and there. And I don't want to take away their effort. They don't have enough funding. They don't have enough support. They need more funding and more support. And they need those headlines to get them that funding and support, um, which is why we don't see the headlines. But they aren't in, They aren't completely gone. They're not invisible. They, they do still mean something. There are people trying. And I'm glad that they are trying. And hopefully someday the system will be more fair, where we won't see these huge amounts of money being snuck around the world by people who can afford to do it, while all we can do is barely afford our monthly shopping and we have to pay more tax than them on average as a percentage. Well, indeed, and talking off uh, rich people doing the things whilst we all suffer, the Tory conference was this week and uh, a video which has emerged shows the uh, Tory Department of Work and Pensions chief belting out time of my life hours before the £20 a week uplift for universal credit Shameless. comes to an end, which effect, uh, affects nearly 6 million people in Britain who will now be wow. between 80 and £100 worse off each month. Uh, so this was uh, Therese Coffey, who was jumping up and down, dancing with abandon at a karaoke party, uh, singing the power ballad whilst people had to decide between uh, eating dinner or... Um, going to bed hungry. Yeah, and it's not surprising that they are so shameless and that they are so they, they care so little for the plight of millions of people in the country. And I think it's it's a this ta- taps into a similar problem we discussed when talking about uh viruses and stuff when the case numbers are a little bit low, we see the individual names of the people who are helpless, the prime minister knows their names. They get they get recognition, but as soon as those numbers cross like hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands, it starts becoming an anonymous blob that people don't care about. Yeah. And poverty in the UK is that. There are so many people who are in poverty and it is not their fault that they are in poverty. 
that that they've become this anonymous mass that nobody cares about directly. Whereas if you looked at those individual stories, uh, the majority of them would be heart wrenching stories, like of people struggling, people working their very hardest, and just having no resource to drag themselves out of the place that they were born into. Um, and maybe there'd be sympathy, but because it's so many, there's just such little sympathy that you've got things like this. Yeah. Universal credit being cut like or reduced to where it once was, and a whole party of people suggesting that it's fine and that people can just go to the food banks again. The other issue from this is, or rather the other headline from this week is Peter Bottomley, who's the longest serving MP. Oh, disgusting. Who in an interview with the New Spectator said that MPs on £81,000 a year, which I believe is the, the salary of, of all MPs at Westminster, mm-hmm. yeah. is causing some to struggle to get by. Oh. And instead, would like MPs to be paid, and I'm quoting here, between £110,000 and £115,000 a year. Ah, yeah. Because that would be fair. That would be so fair. It's nice of them to be to be earning so much less than the average person in the UK for their uh, for their work. They're, they do so much for so little. So this to me, James, again, we, we, this happens every few months. We get a politician who just makes a blindingly stupid comment because they have no idea of what real life is like. And when you're saying that MPs are struggling to get by on 81 grand a year, it's, yeah, it's awful. you should be... You should be voted out your job because I mean, that is just staggering incompetence. Yeah, especially considering how many of our day-to-day expenses they get for free. Absolutely. Especially considering how many like speaking gigs they take on for like several thousand each minimum uh, and how many gifts they get. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's say bribes, uh, because we're not being generous. The amount of money they make out with their with their wage is can be so huge, and especially if you're one of those heartless Tories, that they're coming back to complain to us that they're earning like four times the average of uh, of uh, people in the UK. Oh, I, I I just I'm amazed that they can manage to to get their cereal in the morning. Uh, it, and it, and nothing will happen. They probably will get a pay raise because Boris complains about his own pay all the time. He's he's struggling so hard to make money. Uh, and, and then they've got no sympathy for people who actually are in poverty. It, it, it melts my brain so, so hard that they can complain about their income and they can understand that it can be hard to have that much money. And then they can't understand how it's hard to have a few hundred. Like, no, a few hundred is more than enough, but a few thousand I'm struggling with. We, we also, we did have uh, Steve Baker, who's one of the uh, more long-serving Conservative MPs, come out and say, no, the government does need to fund £10 million a year to continue this uplift. But he, I believe, is one of the only lone right-wing voices. There are some voices, Saying, yes. hey, maybe we shouldn't plunge three million children into abject poverty by taking this lifeline away. Now, the government's defence was, ah, it was only ever meant to be temporary. You can deal with having a hundred less quid a month. I know myself in my very privileged position of having a good job and freelance, which I can can get every single month. Even on a month which is quiet, I'm thinking, hmm, I don't know if I'm going to have to go into my savings this month just because I didn't get enough. Yeah. But I still have that the position of owning my own property, owning my own car, having all these things, which, and even at, a, at certain months where I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have enough, let alone someone in the other side of the city 
who is barely able to keep the lights on. So exactly, it's very sad and it's unsurprising. No, the, the system is made to be taking money from people who can be who can be robbed. Let's say robbed because it is robbery oftentimes, um, in my opinion, and. It's the rich that want more, and they want more, and they want more. But they can't take that money off of each other and have more in total, because that's just like the equilibrium. They're just shifting the balance between themselves. The only way they get a bigger slice of the pie together is if they take even more money from the rest of us. And the government is only enabling that kind of a thing by removing even more uh, help for the poor. And it's weird to me that they're doing it because when you give money to the poor people, it doesn't go into foreign accounts. It doesn't go into holidays. It doesn't go into uh, like random business accounts and random savings accounts. It gets spent. It goes right back into the market. It Im improves GDP. All of those things that they're so proud of, they improve it by, by helping the poor. But they keep stripping away the help from the poor and then complaining that we're not a global powerhouse anymore. And we're not we're not gonna be if we keep keeping everyone down by not giving them the support to like get out of starving day to day, which millions of people are doing. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Lars Vilks, the Swedish artist who oh, let's see, fourteen years ago had sketched the Prophet Muhammad's head on a dog's body, has died yeah. in a traffic accident. So Vilks was reported to be travelling in a yes. civilian police vehicle which collided with a truck near the town of Markarid in Sweden. Investigators said the collision, which also killed two police bodyguards, showed no signs of foul play. Now, the 75-year-old had been living under police protection yeah. for the best part of a decade, yet yeah, since 2007, after receiving death threats. Now, of course, James, when you see a story, a story like this, you immediately think, hmm, was there more going on here? But yes. again, it may just be a, a, a traffic collision, as you say, but also like, yeah. uh, still part of you thinks, you know, I, I could I could believe either either version. Exactly. Like both are believable. It could be a whole grand scheme to finally get this guy because there there are groups of extremists who have wanted him dead ever since he committed his act of art. Um uh, but you, you have got to believe that every now and then somebody who is in protective custody just also just dies yeah. from accidents. And, you know, it is believable. It's probably more believable to me that he just died from an accident than it is that he, this is some sort of a plot or anything. Um, but no, a big name. Um, I can't say I'll miss him, but it is news. Okay, and finally, let's uh, finish on a uh, slightly positive note. This is the news that a third yeah. parent of a Sandy Hook child who was killed in the massacre in 2012 has won their defamation lawsuit against conspiracy extremist and Infowars host Alex Jones. So yes. uh, Neil Heslin is going to have his case heard by a jury to determine the damages awarded along with uh, the Sandy Hook parents in two other cases who also won yep. defamation suits last week. So this uh, is obviously a major step closer to bringing closure to what would be, a, 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 I'm sure, a horrific experience of being told, actually, no, your child didn't exist. They were actors. They were pretending. Yeah. All these horrible things that... Uh, yeah. All the huge conspiracy elements that are being broadcasted and profited yeah, from. Yeah. And uh, finally, parents who actually did have f five and six-year-olds who were shot dead at their primary school, yeah. finally getting um, what seems to be a, a step towards that recognition of, no, people who are saying all this stuff are terrible human beings. They can be held accountable, yeah.
And Alex Jones is a terrible human being, and he's a part of the problem. Um, and in the U.S., in the last in the last number of days, there's been like seven more school shootings. It's, it's back, and this kind of a talk about school shootings is a part of the problem. And I'm glad to see uh, that he is going to have to pay some form of damages. I hope it is uh, a huge amount that he can't actually afford very easily, and he has to recognize that maybe it is time to start being a decent person instead of just trying to profit off of every single thing he possibly can, mostly by targeting vulnerable people. It's always nice to hear when, as we've talked about, the theme of this episode very much being accountability, Yeah, where there actually is, or rather appears to be, Indeed. some movement towards that in this case. Sometimes it comes about, sometimes it does come about, and hey... You referenced really early in the show has come about for some big platforms recently. Twitch got hacked because someone disliked them so much. Yep. Uh, and that is a different kind of accountability. If you can, if you don't do a good job, you garner some amount of hate, you monopolize an element of the market, people are going to hate you and use that as an excuse to, to hack you. <laughs> and it is a very embarrassing hack for any tech company to have their entire infrastructure leaked. Did, did you get your financial uh, rewards Leaked your contract? I mean, leaked? I, I guess. I guess I got how much money I've made. Oh dear! Publicly leaked, but I already do that because I I give half away and I tell the amount. Nice. So you just multiply that by two, and you know exactly how much money I made, and you don't even need to multiply it to know how much I kept. Transparency. That's what we like on this show. I, I believe in transparency, and like honestly, I think the world would be a whole lot better if we knew more about. Oh yeah. Uh, all of those mega wealthy, if we knew about the money they had. Um, if, if, like if we if we if everybody that is on the BBC giving their opinions also had like their annual salary under their name, we might listen more to some of the people who are there just for the the good of their own uh, ethics than the person who's there clearly because they've got the seven figure salary and they want to keep keeping it. It's I do consider that when I'm introduced as a cryptocurrency analyst and investor on BBC radio programs, yeah. do they know that I actually own 0.05 of a Bitcoin <laughs> and 0.45 of an Ethereum? Like, uh, if I think if they knew that, they'd be like, you're not an investor. <laughs> you just yeah. have some money, some savings, and you chucked it out a few years ago and you got lucky. Yeah. But, you know, that, that kind of transparency, is, there's a lot of negative that can come from it, but I'm, 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 I'm curious whether there'd be more harm than good from knowing a little bit more about everybody um, who is having to, who is doing things in a public way, like um, influencing in any way, whether it be via social media or via media media. Certainly. Okay, James, we'll have to end it there. Thank you very, very much for listening. And James, thank you for your time. No, thank and you. And if you want to get in touch with uh, the show, but anything that we've talked about, if you want to uh, review something for us, you can do. Seesawparade at gmail.com or just send it to me and James. Yeah. And we'll have a great time. Stop by my stream. Tell me how much money you think I made. Hey, nine pound. <laughs> I actually have made more than that this month. Oh, wow. 11. Imagine. I'm rolling in it. Okay. We'll have to leave it there. Right, bye, James. I'll <laughs> see you next week. Bye-bye.